We're continuing through the gospel together. This morning we're going to be looking at one verse. John chapter 1, verse 14. I'll read aloud, follow along with me in your own Bibles. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is God's holy, inspired, inerrant, and infallible word. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we pray that you would help us to see your glory this morning as we study your word together. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we might see and savor the excellencies of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Note takers, here we go. Five points for you this morning. The Word of God, the flesh of God, the presence of God, the glory of God, and the Son of God. If you didn't get all those, I'll give them again as I go through the sermon. Point number one, the Word of God. This one is so short, it almost didn't make it in as a point, but it needs to be there. It's a bit of a review. If you haven't been here for the last two weeks, and you may not know this, but we've been walking through John chapter 1, verses 1 through 13, and as we have, we've seen that this word that we're going to be talking about this morning in verse 14, this word is Jesus. Right, The word that existed before the creation of the world. The word was with God, but the word was also God. We can see that if we look back at verse 1. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. This word is Jesus. Point number two, the flesh of God. The flesh of God. We live in an information-rich age, which means that we can tend to overestimate how much we know as human beings. But those among us who know the most are quick to remind us that we actually don't know very much at all. We still don't understand the physics of the flight of the humble bumblebee. We still don't really understand why human beings yawn. Sean, I know why human... You think you do, but you don't. I'll argue with you after service. We still don't really understand why human beings sleep. In an age where we are excited about the possibilities of putting colonies on Mars, we would do well to remember that over 80% of our ocean is unmapped, unexplored, and unobserved. Now, to shift gears a little bit, there is also a great deal of mystery, stuff we don't know, in the realm of theology. I mean, listen, we've been studying this book for a couple thousand years, and by God's grace, we know a whole lot about it. He's been very kind to reveal the truth of his word to us, 
And we don't think you have to be, you know, have 17 different uh, expert degrees in order to do it. We think God's word is plain and clear, accessible. Consider the gospel itself in the book of Ephesians. Paul says this, God has made known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. So there was something about the gospel that was shrouded in darkness, we, we couldn't understand it, that in the coming of Christ was revealed. The truths of the gospel are not riddles wrapped in mysteries inside a cloud of enigma. But what we're going to look at this morning, in John chapter 1 verse 14, this may be the greatest mystery of the gospel there is. This is one of those things that when we get to heaven, we're going to be like, God, I need you to explain to me how this happened because I can't really wrap my finite mind around it. In verse 14, we see that the eternal word of God, the word that was with God, the word that was God before all of creation, this word that created the universe and everything in it, this word became flesh. That's what we just saw in verse 14. Look back there. It says, in the word became flesh. In the occult religion of Mormonism, there is a doctrine known as exaltation. In the Mormon doctrine of exaltation, once uh, a Mormon brother receives this gift, he will inherit all of the attributes of God the Father, including Godhood. So Mormons believe that these exalted ones will become gods and goddesses in the afterlife and that they will have, quote, all power, glory, dominion, and knowledge, end quote. They also get their own planet, which is kind of gnarly. Like, I don't want to be a Mormon, but there's like one thing, like. Christianity, on the other hand, says that although human beings are created in the image and likeness of God, we are emphatically not God. We will never be anything approximating God. But in this morning's text, we encounter the biblical teaching that although man cannot become God, God did in fact become man. The Word became flesh. So how does something like that work? I have no clue. It's one of the great mysteries of the faith. Unless you think me and a thousand other theologians are just being lazy by calling it a mystery, you know, not applying our brain power to the riddle. Here's Paul writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16. He says, without question, that's not me saying that, that's Paul. This is the great mystery of our faith. Christ was revealed in a human body. And what's interesting about this verse is that it is understood by many scholars to be part of a, a, a creed that was circulating around churches during this time. So what that means is that this idea that Paul is communicating to Timothy, that the incarnation of Jesus being a mystery, that was in wide circulation at the time that Paul wrote this. This is something we just can't wrap our minds around. We know that it happened, true, but do we know how it happened? Do we understand the cosmic mechanics of the word becoming flesh? Not at, not at all. I don't think 
the, the great mystery that Paul was writing to Timothy about has been any more illuminated in the last 2,000 years of church history. Now, when we think about other facets of the gospel, like you can take the doctrine of penal substitutionary atonement, the idea that Christ paid the legal price for our sins on the cross. We don't understand everything about that, not the way that God does, but we understand a lot. It's, it's pretty clear. We, we talk about like the doctrine of double imputation, right? Christ's righteousness given to us and our sin put on Christ on the cross and the wrath of God was appeased. There's a lot that we know about this doctrine. We can get our arms around it a little bit, but not the incarnation. Move outside the realm of theology again for a moment. Think about something like photosynthesis. You guys remember that? Eighth grade physical sciences, right? The process whereby plants and other organisms receive light and then turn light from the sun into energy that they live on. Remember that? It's pretty mind-blowing when you stop and think about it. How does light turn into energy? Well, believe it or not, we actually know a lot about how that works. Scientists have, yeah, dug down. It's an astounding concept. It's a miracle of creation, but it's a miracle that we can, in one sense, make sense of and explain at some level of depth, but not the incarnation. We know how sunlight turns into energy, but not how the Word becomes flesh. Now, I don't want to spend all my time with you together this morning talking about what we don't know. That would be less than edifying. So let's talk about what we do know. Here are some things that we do know about the word becoming flesh. Uh, these are going to be subpoints for the extra nerdy note takers. Michael Waugh, this is for you, buddy. Oh, he, he takes that as a compliment. And by the way, if you're wondering why I'm drinking out of a Waffle House cup this morning, there may have been a failure to put a glass of water right here. Heads will roll. People will be held accountable in this administration. The first thing that we know is that uh, Jesus didn't live in the flesh like a guy camps out in, the tent, in a tent, okay? That is to say, we don't think that the body of Christ, the flesh that the Word became, was some kind of external shell that the Word inhabited like some kind of a pod. The text doesn't say that the Word inhabited the flesh, the text says that the word became flesh. Did he lose any of his wordness? No. But he still became flesh. If John wanted to say the word inhabited flesh or dwelled inside flesh, he could have used the same word that he uses just in your English Bibles, just three words later. The word dwelt that you see there, and the word became flesh and dwelled among us. That in the Greek is eskenosin. It literally means to tabernacle, to pitch a tent, to set up in the midst of. He did not use that word. The word became flesh. The second thing that we know is that Jesus didn't merely appear to be human, as some people would say. Gnostic heresy is not really prominent in our day, although iterations of it have made it all the way up to our present time. But Gnostics were uh, people in, in the ancient world who believed in a sort of dualism between matter and, and spiritual and 
Anything that's immaterial is good. It comes from the perfect realm up above, and there's demigods and all this other stuff. But basically, they believe that matter was evil. It was tainted. Everything in this creative world, from this pulpit to the flesh covering the bone and sinew of your body, all of that tainted. So the Gnostics said, oh, we can believe in Jesus, but we can't believe that he was actually a man. We can't believe that he actually had human flesh because we think that human flesh is tainted. Listen to John address this in a letter that he wrote much later than the Gospel of John, as these Gnostic teachers were roaming around spreading their lies. I say this, says John, because many deceivers who, did not, who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh have gone out into the world. Any such person is the deceiver and the antichrist. So you say that Jesus didn't come in the flesh, he only appeared to be in the flesh? Well, no, you've misunderstood Christianity. John 1.14, and the word became flesh. Not put on a magic act that tricked everyone into thinking that he was flesh. We'll talk, about, we'll talk more about why it was necessary for the word to become flesh later in the sermon. Number three, Jesus was not just some man who was infused with some kind of divine mojo, as some ancient teachings on Christ espoused. Jesus was not just some kind of supercharged, turbo-powered human being, like a regular guy, but like a pinch of deity. Hit the NOS button. Throughout church history, there was a heresy that has espoused the idea that Jesus was infused with deity at his baptism. At his baptism, the Holy Spirit descended upon him, and when the Spirit fell, then he became fully divine. Well, friends, that's not what the Word of God says. The Word became flesh and was born of the Virgin Mary. The Word was born as flesh, not imparted to flesh later on in his life. The fourth thing that we know is that Jesus' body the flesh that the Word became will never cease to exist. The eternal Word produced eternal flesh. Listen to Jesus a little bit later in the Gospel of John in John chapter 2. Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Here come the Jews. The Jews then said, it's taken 46 years to build this temple. And you'll raise it up in three days? Get out of here. It's ridiculous. And then John adds this parenthetical note. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. The Jews thought that Jesus was talking about the literal temple. The structure where the nation of Israel practiced worship. But Jesus was talking about himself, and the Jews didn't understand. Now, here's the thing that's significant. The Jews knew that the temple was where the holy presence of God would dwell amongst the people of God. And yet, here was the holy presence of God dwelling amongst the people of God, and they couldn't see him. They could not recognize him. Jesus was standing right in front of them saying, Hey, listen, that building, yeah, that's going to be done away with. Me, here, I'm it. I'm the thing that this was pointing to. And of course, Jesus knew that he was going to be killed. 
He also knew that he was going to be resurrected. And when he was resurrected, friends, he was not resurrected as a spirit. It's not like in those cartoons where the body is laying there dead and then the ghost kind of flies up out and away from the body and leaves the body there. That's not what happened in the resurrection. His body was raised from the grave. His flesh was lifted up. And it was so real that Thomas could touch it and then come to believe in it. It was so real that he could eat fish with his disciples. It wasn't like Casper the ghost where he puts the food in and then it just falls out all over the ground. It was so real that he could walk along the road to Emmaus with two men and the men were not scared or surprised or taken aback by his presence. His flesh, when it was resurrected, was so real that when they went to go look for Jesus in the tomb, there was no flesh to find. One of the great goals of our Christian life is to be shaped into the image of Jesus, to be made like him in every way. But sometimes we can have a truncated view of what it means to be made like Jesus. We think, oh, I'll be made like Jesus spiritually, great, morally, fantastic, amen. But sometimes we forget that one of the great promises of the gospel is that our flesh will be made like his flesh. Listen to Philippians chapter 3. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, when he comes will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body. So whatever divine alchemy that was at work in the act of the word becoming flesh in the incarnation, that same creative power is going to be applied to you and to me on the last day when Jesus raises us up and makes us fully like him, body and spirit. Now, I want you to note before we move on, I want you to note the language that Paul uses there in Philippians. He says, we await the day. We are eagerly anticipating as we struggle, as we suffer here in this fallen world, in these corrupted bodies of flesh that are falling apart, going haywire all the time, as we deal with our immuno deficiency diseases and diabetes and just the degradation of old age and the corruption of sin that so constantly pulls down on us. We are eagerly awaiting the flesh of Jesus that we will be transformed into to be like him. Number three, point three, the presence of God. The presence of God. Uh, we've talked before about how the Bible is really one story from beginning to end, and, and there's a lot of different ways you can describe this, this story of salvation. I think one good way to summarize the story of the Bible is like this. It's to ask the question, how can a holy God dwell in the midst of an unholy people? That's what our brother Grant walked us through a little bit this morning before our scripture reading. Now, I want you to keep that concept in mind. A holy God dwelling amongst, amongst an unholy people. Keep that in mind as we come to the next part of verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. A holy God came down 
and made his presence among us an unholy people in an unholy world. Now, if you were to translate this part of verse 14 as literally as possible, it would actually read something more like this. And the word tabernacled among us. What does that mean, tabernacled? Well, if you were here during our time in the book of Leviticus, you, you got a lesson on that, right? We, we talked about the tabernacle. The tabernacle is this tent, this really big, really ornate tent that God commanded his people Israel to build for him so that his presence could dwell among them. They were unholy. God called them and made them holy and said, I want you to be my holy representatives to all the world. But guess what? You're still sinners. But I'm going to come and dwell in your presence. But there's more to the story of the tabernacle than mere presence. You see, God's desire to be present with his people, it says something about how he relates to them in their sin. I think the tabernacle communicates God's heart to be near his beloved. Before the the construction of the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, do you remember where the glory of God rested in relation to the people? It was way high up at the top of a mountain, Mount Sinai. Exodus twenty four sixteen. And the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. Verse 17. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. There was a reason why God's glory had to dwell so far away from the people for a time. And that reason is sin. In Genesis 3, we saw that as soon as mankind was plunged into sin because of the fall, the first thing that God did was remove them from his presence. Why? Well, there's two reasons. One, I think, to give uh, a shadow of the reality of hell. To be removed from the presence of God is what 1 Thessalonians says hell will be like forever. But I think there's another reason here. I think It says something about the nature of God's grace. You see, friends, our sin and the holy glory of God cannot coexist in the same space. The light of God's glory always overcomes darkness. Our sin is darkness. If we were to dwell in his holy presence in our sinful state, we would be destroyed. We would stand as much of a chance in the presence of God's glory as an ice cube coming into contact with the surface of the sun. No chance. See, friends, for our safety, there must be distance between a holy God and sinful man, which is why it was necessary for a time for God's glory to dwell up and away from the people. But in the tabernacle, we see the heart of God. In the tabernacle, God says, I'm not going to stay at arm's length from you forever. I'm going to come to you. I'm going to make a way for my holy presence to be near you. Listen, without destroying you. Now that same loving heart is put on display for all of humanity in the incarnation of Jesus. When God came and did not merely tabernacle in the midst of Israel but made his presence, his dwelling place, 
among the nations. In the incarnation, the holy, eternal word comes down and makes his home in this fallen world corrupted by sin. And in the incarnation, we see that even in our sin, the heart of God is to be near us. He is not utterly repulsed by us, even though he has every reason to be. God, in this sense, is like a veteran nurse on the front lines of the battlefield. He has a strong stomach for the horrors of our sin. He doesn't gag. He doesn't hold his nose. He doesn't turn and leave the room when the aroma, when the stench of our sin hits his holy nostrils. He moves closer to us to care for us, to bind up our wounds, to resurrect us. Some of us feel like we just cannot approach God the way we are. Broken, sinful, ashamed, damaged, corrupted. I heard just this week about someone who said they just, they just couldn't make their way back to church yet because they need to get their act together first. Friends, listen to me clearly. If you think that you have to take the first step towards God in order to have a relationship with God, you have fundamentally misunderstood Christianity. There used to be a church down the road here that had a sign on 6th Avenue. And on that sign, it said, you take the first step and God will do the rest. They could not be more wrong. I don't know of a way to put a more anti-gospel message on a church sign than that right there. You take the first step and God will do the rest. Friends, in the incarnation, we learn the beautiful truth about God's love that he has already taken the first step towards us. And the second, and the third, he looked us right in the soul, he saw every rotten thing about us, And he still moved towards us. This is the heart of God in the incarnation, in the tabernacling amongst us. It's a heart to move towards us to save us and not destroy us. Think about John 3.16. We all know John 3.16, right? Maybe in a generation that won't be true as America becomes less church. Here's what we're going to do. I'm going to read the first half of the verse And I'm going to do it in the KJV because that's still like the most memorized version of this verse. And some of you guys are like, yeah. And then I want you to read the second half, okay? I'll read the first half and then you you chime in and with one voice, you give me the second half. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that... (laughs) We get the point. You guys know it, right? Do you understand that in the book of John, the world is not a good thing? In the book of John, the world is only ever spoken of as something that is evil, something that's ruined, something that's been corrupted by sin. So when you read John 3.16, for God so loved the world, you should be blown away. John is saying that God loved and moved towards sinners in their sin, in their state of corruption. 
But friends, before Jesus died on the cross to save us, he had to become flesh and dwell among us. He had to live the perfect life that not one of us could live. He had to go to the cross and die the death and pay the price that not one of us could pay for our sins. And he had to do that not as an abstraction, not as a hologram like Tupac at Coachella. He had to do that as a real person. His flesh had to go to the cross and it had to be real human flesh because only Man may pay the penalty for the sins of man. But how could we ever pay the consequences? How could we ever pay that debt back to God? God is a holy, but an infinitely holy God. He's righteous, but he's an infinitely righteous God. Well, he had to not be only fully man, but also fully God. Because only someone that is fully God can pay that eternal debt. Friends, Without John 1.14, there is no John 3.16. Now you can trace this beating heart of God's love throughout the entire Bible, from the tabernacle to the temple to the incarnation, but it doesn't stop there. Let's fast forward to the end of the story. Let's talk a little bit about heaven. When you think about heaven... I wonder what you think it's going to be like. Like, what has influenced the way that you think about heaven? Is it like medieval Roman Catholic art? Is it Looney Tunes cartoons that you watched growing up? What do you think heaven's going to be like? No sickness, disease, or death? Yeah, that's right. Praise God. Can't wait for that. Will there be animals? I can tell you what animal won't be there. Cats. Other than that, though, I don't know. Amen, brother. Yeah, amen. What about roads of gold? Will there be roads of gold in heaven? Ooh. I don't know. I like to think that heaven would be a little bit better than like a gaudy Trump casino in like Atlantic City. You know, just gold everywhere. Ooh, I'm so impressed. Well, listen to this description of heaven from Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with man. He will tabernacle with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. I love that the final vision of God coming to be in the midst of his people is not a vision ultimately of destruction, but of salvation, of joy, redemption, restoration. The promise of the gospel is that God will come and make his permanent home with us And in the incarnation, we see a shadow, a foretaste of that heaven. Point number four, the Son of God. The next phrase that we're going to look at in verse 14 has to do with who Jesus is as God's Son. Like, what does that mean? There's a lot of confusion. If you talk to some Muslims about the Christian faith, 
one of the things that they'll bring up almost immediately to try to like convert you to Islam is like, uh, guys, you're Christians, you believe that God was born on earth, and to them that's heresy. Well, is that what John 1.14 is saying? Is that what the rest of the Bible is saying? No. You'll see that the text says that the glory that Jesus has in the flesh is the glory of the one and only Son. Look at verse 14 again. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Okay, well, what kind of glory is it, John? Don't worry, guys, I'll tell you. Glory as of the only Son from the Father. So whatever glory there is in the incarnation, in the existence of Jesus in the flesh, that glory is like the glory of a Son. What does that mean? The Greek word translated as one and only in your ESV Bibles, it was more traditionally translated uh, into English as only begotten. Okay, so if you grew up reading the KJV, you probably yeah, heard that, the only begotten Son of God. And there are a lot of reasons why uh, translation committees have chosen to go with you know, the language of uniqueness here instead of only begotten. I'm not going to bore you with all the complicated stuff, why they did that. Uh, what I'd prefer to do is to just... Uh, to show you the best meaning of the sense of the Greek word here. And I'm just going to try to do that by showing you what's happening in context, okay? So I want you to remember that last week in verses 12 and 13, we were talking about those who are saved and how they are children of God. Go back there and let's look at it real quick. Verses 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Okay? This is the doctrine of adoption. We were not children. We did not have the right to be called children of God. We were lost in our unbelief. We belonged to the world. We belonged to our father, Satan. We're going to see that a whole lot throughout the rest of the Gospel of John. But then when we believed, we received the right to become children of God. Okay? This happens through the new birth, new birth. Now, in verse 14, John is trying to help us understand Jesus' glory. What kind of glory does Jesus have? Well, it's a unique glory. It's the glory that only a begotten son has, not an adopted son. Are we saying that Jesus was born? No, that's not what we're saying. Remember the context. Begotten here just refers to hereditary versus adopted. So every person in this room who is a Christian, we are all sons and daughters of God, but we are adopted sons and daughters. We have our own glory, but it's not the same glory as Jesus. We don't have what Hebrews 1 verse 3 describes as the exact imprint of his nature, right? I hate to always bring my daughter up and use her as an example, but I also kind of love it. So like if you look at patience... You see an exact imprint of me from her hands to her cheeks to her body type to her lack of athleticism to her love for nachos. She is an exact imprint of my nature, and I love it. In Genesis 1, humans are created in God's image and likeness. We are created to be like God. There is a glory in that. It is a very real glory. It's a glory that was diminished because of sin, 
but a glory that is also restored in salvation. But the glory of Jesus is not like God. The glory that Jesus has, he has because he is God. He is the only truly begotten, the only one who has since eternity's past permanently emanated out from the Father. The glory that he has is, John 17 tells us, the glory that he has shared with the Father since before the foundations of the world. Now, this is going to make a little more sense once we get into verse, uh, excuse me, point five. So, point five, the glory of God. You'll notice that the last phrase here in verse 14, excuse me, second to last phrase. If you're wondering this morning why we don't talk about full of grace and truth, we're going to talk about that next week, Okay. The, the last, second to last phrase here, it says, And we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father. We have seen his glory. Huh. Well, first of all, what is, what is this glory that we have seen? Right? If we've seen it, can we recognize it? Can we describe it? Can we explain it? Well, there are two ways that uh, glory is talked about in Scripture. One refers to like a sense of, of weightiness, like the reality of the excellencies and beauty and holiness of God. It presses down on us. Think about like a fighter pilot going up into the atmosphere, all those G-forces pulling down, you know, his, the skin on his face is going like this. He feels like the weight of a thousand worlds is like coming down on his chest, right? That's glory in one sense. It's the weight of gravity about the reality of God. But another way that scripture talks about glory is illumination, luminescence. It refers to the light of the beauty of who God is and all of his manifold excellencies. I think our verse this morning is talking about the glory of Jesus in that second sense, which makes sense, right? As we've been walking through John, he is the light, right? I think in order to really understand what John is saying here, we need to turn over to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. We already referenced it, but I want us to turn over there and look at it again. Hebrews 1, 3. Here the author of Hebrews says, He, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of the glory of God. Now that, that, that language there, that radiance language, this is imagery, uh, this is imagery of light. And this is a metaphor that's being employed to help us understand what the glory of Jesus is like. So you think about the rays of light emanating out from the source of light. That's what Jesus is like. The rays of light that emanate out from the source of light, in their essence, are no different from the light source itself. Nevertheless, they are not the light source themselves. 
I know this is kind of hard to wrap your mind around it. Just remember, at the beginning of John, the Word was with God and the Word was God. So there's a sense in which the Word was God, but it was also distinct from God because you have to be distinct to be with. The same thing is true of God's glory. It emanates out from the source, and yet it is distinct from the source. So if you look at the rays from the light of the sun outside, you are looking at the same light that exists within the sun itself, although it is not the sun itself. This metaphor is limited. Every metaphor is limited in trying to talk about the reality of who God is. It's like we're like 2D creatures trying to understand a 4D reality, which is why unless there's a metaphor for God given to you in Scripture, you should probably not invent one on your own. No, the Trinity is not like a clover or an egg or water. Now, here's the take home. You're like, Sean, oh, you're killing me. Wrap it up. Let's get to it. Here's the take home for this point. When you see Jesus, you see the illumination of who God is in all of his manifold excellencies. When you look at Jesus, you see God. It's hard to know what God is like. Try looking directly into the sun. Let me know how that goes. In order for us to know what the sun of light, like, the sun has to emanate out from itself, reveal its light to us. In the same way, God has to reveal himself to us, and he has revealed himself to us in Jesus. But there's a problem here. Here's the problem. The text says, we have seen this glory, right? That's what it says. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen this glory. Who's the we? Is John using the royal we? Is this just referring to the apostles who were there and saw Jesus in the flesh? Was it anyone who ever saw Jesus? In his incarnation or after his resurrection? Was it only those who saw a glimpse of his heavenly glory at the Mount of Transfiguration? What about us in this room? Are we part of the we? Have we seen the glory of Christ? Well, in order to understand what John is saying here, I think we have to go elsewhere in Scripture. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 4 through 6. We'll actually start in verse 3 to be clear about the context that's going on here. And even if our gospel, notice the language of the gospel here, is veiled, and veiled refers to a covering of the light, a hiding of the light, even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world, that's Satan, has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God said, excuse me, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I want you to see three things from this text that will help you understand who the we is in John 1.14. The first thing that I want you to see is that Paul says that the light, remember that's just another metaphor for glory, that the light of Christ's glory is seen in the gospel. So go, going back to John, stay, stay there where you are, but just I'm going to go back to John 1.14 when it says, and we have seen this light, we have seen this glory. Paul understands seeing the glory of Christ to be something that can only be seen in the gospel. So even if you didn't see Jesus in person, there is a sense in which you can still see his glory anytime and every time the gospel is proclaimed. You can see it, maybe. The second thing I want you to see here, this is where that maybe comes in, is Paul says that some people see the glory and others don't. Right? Remember what we're trying to do here. We're trying to answer the question, who is the we? Who has seen the glory? Well, according to Paul in 2 Corinthians not everyone who hears the gospel sees the glory. In verse 4, he says that the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. He's put a veil over their face. He's done something to prevent them as they listen to the gospel. He's done something to prevent them from being able to actually receive the gospel. They can see, but they can't see. They hear, but they don't hear. You remember Jesus saying something about that in his ministry? In verse 6, we see that there are some who do receive the light, but it's only because God sovereignly overpowers the veil of darkness, right? So look at verse 6. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, remember that's a reference to Genesis 1, has shown in our hearts. Who's the hour? It's the same as the we in John 1.14. He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So there's a veil over the unbeliever. But God sovereignly overcomes that, veil, overcomes that veil of darkness. And in the same way that God spoke light and life into the darkness in Genesis 1, he speaks light and life of the glory of Christ into our hearts as we hear the gospel. Third thing, this is where it kind of, we bring it all together. Receiving the gospel message is seeing the glory of Christ. Seeing in the Bible in general, but in the gospel of John in particular, seeing is a metaphor for receiving. And you can see that as well here in 2 Corinthians. So here's the scenario. The gospel goes out. That's what Paul says in verse 5, right? Verse 5 here, he says, 
for what we proclaim. So this is the gospel's going out. We're proclaiming it. We're preaching it. We're sowing the seed. Anybody who has ears, we're giving it to them as often as we can. The gospel goes out. But some are blinded. They can't see the glory of Christ. They can hear the words of the message, but they can't believe the truth, the beauty, the goodness of what they are hearing. And the Bible calls that spiritual blindness. So, who can see the glory of Christ? Who has seen the glory of Christ? Anyone who has received the gospel. Anyone who has believed in Jesus Christ. The we here is every Christian that has ever been and every Christian that ever will be. So my question, my question for you this morning, friends, is can you see the glory of Christ? Can you see him for who he truly is? Or do you think he's just a good moral teacher? Do you think he's just some really cool Palestinian guy who had some good ethnic ideas back in the day that are pretty out of style, not really that useful in our own day? Do you just think he's someone who belongs in the same company as Buddha and Confucius and whoever? If you can't see the light, I wonder if it's because the darkness of this world is crowding out the light of God's glory in your heart. The darkness of lust. The darkness of greed. The darkness of carnal ambition. The darkness of physical vanity. The darkness of bad southern religion. The darkness of American politics. We could just go on and on. I want to know what it is in your heart that is crowding out the glory of Christ that needs to come inside. Now, perhaps you think asking a question like this in a church gathering and not an evangelistic meeting is kind of silly. You think, well, Sean, if I was blind, I would know it. Because that's what you're standing up there accusing me of. If I'm not a Christian, and if I was blind, I think I would know it. Well, maybe. Maybe not. There is something called Anton Syndrome. It is a rare symptom of brain damage in the occipital lobe, so frontal, temporal, parietal, occipital. And those who have it are cortically blind. They can't see. But they affirm and adamantly affirm in the face of clear evidence of their blindness, they affirm their ability to see. This is a real medical condition, well documented. They fail to accept being blind. They refuse evidence to the contrary. They even employ something called confabulation. That's a big word. It basically just means inventing visions. I can see it. Let me tell you what I'm seeing. And they do that through the use of past visual memories. They confabulate a reality to deal with their blindness. You don't think that that's possible for you spiritually? Of course it is. 
course it is. That is the horrendous testimony of Christianity in so much of the American South. We invent a reality to protect us from our spiritual blindness. Okay, Sean, assuming that's true, how can I know if I'm blind and I'm denying the fact of my blindness? That's kind of a catch-22, isn't it? I mean, you're saying that I'm deceiving myself on purpose. Well, how can I know that I'm doing that? Well, a couple things. One, listen to 1 John chapter 1, verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and that we proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Man, John really stays on message, doesn't he? Light, darkness. If we say we have fellowship with him, While we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. So how can you know if you're blind to the glory of God? If you're blind to his light? Well, you can just look at your life. Are you walking in such a way that shows evidence that you are in the light? Okay, but there's a problem with that. I mean, I can just confabulate away that evidence of my walk. So how can I know? I mean, we are master self-deceivers. Jesus was talking to the Jews about their spiritual blindness in John chapter 9, and this is how that went. Some of the Pharisees near him heard these things, and they said to him, are we blind also? Like, yeah, come on, get a grip, Jesus. We're not blind, we're the Pharisees. Friends, ultimately, I think that the answer to this is as simple as it can possibly be. It's the local church. It's not the only answer, but it's the most normal answer. It should be the most regular part of the way that you make sure that you are not being self-deceived. Because you need somebody there to tell you the truth about yourself. Will you always listen to what they say when they talk to you? No, not always. But if you're a Christian, you will. If you're a Christian and somebody tells you that you're deceived and that you're walking in the darkness, you will respond to that positively and begin to walk in the light. A Christian who refuses to have fellowship with the church and be a member of a gospel-preaching, Bible-believing church has already resigned themselves to the darkness. The church is like God's doctor. She comes along and tells us, You're not seeing right. I'm trying to give you information to help you see that you are blind, that you are deceived. And not only is the church the safeguard against self-deception and spiritual blindness, she is also the main instrument that God uses to broadcast the light of his glory to the nations. So if you're a Christian and you care about the shining of the light of the glory of Christ, then you should care about the church. The church is like a lighthouse to the nations. The church is like a gigantic projector, and we are just throwing out light waves into the universe. If you care about the nations coming to see and to savor the glory of Jesus Christ, you must care about the body. Friends, I praise God that so many of you do care about these things, that you have committed to walk in the light even as he is in the light, to be held accountable, to have people lock arms with you as you walk in the light so that 
if by chance you begin to get pulled over into the darkness, you trust that you have people who will pull you back into the light where you need to be. Friends, what we have studied together this morning is a great mystery, but it is nonetheless true and it is worth celebrating together as one body. So let's take a moment, silence our hearts, meditate on what we've heard, and then our brother Will Stevenson will come lead us in a prayer of praise.